Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Arrested for something someone saw in their dreams, Ryan Ferguson hoped justice would prevail in court. He wasn't prepared to face a corrupt system, fabricated evidence, and a prosecutor who seemed willing to do anything to win. It would take an army to right some of the wrongs, but an innocent man remains in jail and a killer is still on the loose. This week's episode is The Wrongful Conviction of Ryan Ferguson, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, well, happy Valentine's <laughs> Day. I, um, I've i been reading just about, oh, just kind of how it's pretty, uh, it's pretty lawless out there for fabricating evidence, for police officers fabricating evidence, prosecutors, because we said we would, I said I would follow up on that. And uh, what a, um, what a way to celebrate Valentine's Day. <laughs> Getting, yes. I'm being serious, if you, if we can all do something to, um, I believe I read a quote from Ryan Ferguson that said 40,000, something like 40,000 inmates in the U.S. are wrongfully convicted. Uh-huh. If we can do something to just free one of those, then that is, um, that's what love is truly about, Heather. I mean, that's pa- it's something to be passionate about that. And then, you know, you see Ryan Ferguson gets out, but the same people that put him in there maybe are still working their jobs a lot of times we see like in the michael morton case ken anderson was the prosecutor in texas it's like a very famous case of hiding evidence he became a judge and mm-hmm. like wouldn't you know the prosecutor in this case became a judge it's almost so like they're him. scared to um say that anybody and in, in their own brethren is doing anything wrong just a classic example of failing upward. Mm-hmm. So you just... Uh, and you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Kind of, mm-hmm. we all look out for each other. We look the other way. When that, you can't, that works for some things, like improv, mm-hmm. but yes. not in the legal system when everybody's doing shady shit. Yeah, and I hope now, because a lot of these convictions, you know, this is 2005 and uh, Michael Morton was 1987. So I hope now those that are in power now say no more. We're not doing this. You see tons of conviction integrity unions opening across the country. Williamson County was subject to an audit after that case. And so, you know, hopefully we're moving in the right direction that we say no, we are standing up for what's right. A prosecutor got fired in Texas, though, for refusing to withhold evidence and then tried to sue for wrongful termination and lost. And the court said, well, it doesn't really protect you. You know, the law says you have to disclose the evidence, but getting fired for that isn't something that you could sue for. So that's kind of a loophole Mm -hmm. that if you work for an office that is, uh, you know, withholding evidence and you try to stand up for yourself, you may lose your job. But I think, you know, you don't really want to work in a place like that anyway. So someone also asked, 
if there has ever been a time where using, like lying to someone you're interrogating to, um, has helped get an actual confession out of them. Tons of times. Yeah. So, I mean, in courts allow it, like lying is allowed. You can lie to the defendant. You can say the the victim said this before they died. The, uh, the accomplice is going to testify against you. Uh, if you if there's, it's an actual murder and you tell the suspect, well, you know, she actually survived and she's in the hospital and she's telling us that you did it, even if the victim is actually dead, they can come in and say, well, we tested your DNA and your DNA it matches. It's a match. Or we, we t- check the fingerprints and the fingerprints matched. Um, How is this legal? Is there like an actual law that's said like this is why this is OK to do this? No, I mean, frequently what you find, it's not like it says a law says you get to live. The law says you can't murder people. So it doesn't say the law says you're allowed to lie. It's It's been that there have been tons of cases of police officers lying during interrogation and then when the suspect or when the defendant challenges it later the court says no that's fine there's a couple i believe it's a minority of states and i think florida is one of them that they will throw out a confession if the confession is based on a fake police report which or a fake uh dna report that says well these semen stains match your dna or whatever but it is usually the majority of the courts they're allowed to i mean up to fabricating evidence um, it's the the convictions have not been thrown out or the confessions have not been thrown out, unfortunately. Yeah, that seems, um, I don't know. It, like I said in the last episode, it just doesn't sit right with me that that yeah. is allowed. Well, and the tables have kind of turned a little bit as far as civil liability in the uh, Missouri's in the Eighth Circuit. And one of the things that prosecutors can hide behind is qualified immunity. And the Eighth Circuit recently, I mean, and, and we'll get to the civil case here and what happened um, uh, with the liability in this case. But uh, I think it was in Nebraska. It was some investigators had manufactured false evidence and the the defendant was innocent and they had manufactured fake evidence and he was allowed to sue them. They tried to claim qualified immunity to try to throw the suit out. And the Eighth Circuit said, no, we're not allowing that. And I think the Fourth Circuit also said, you know, it's a violation of someone's due process rights to knowingly use false evidence. And this is, you know, clearly established. So it's one of those where and the the problem is it's illegal, right? So you can't tamper with a witness. You can't tamper with physical evidence. But what we see in a lot of these cases is it takes so long in the appeals process to overturn a conviction that by the time you get to the point where you would go back to the prosecutor and say, hey, man, you lied or, hey, police officer, you made this up and it ended up at trial, whatever – the the statute of limitations has run most of the time if a felony you know is three years in Missouri and one year for a misdemeanor I think Texas it's three and two where five ten fifteen years ago however long the the trial happened or the investigation happened where this evidence was you know tampered with or the government record was withheld it's too late by the time you figure it out that it happened it's well beyond one to three years hmm. so even where it would be illegal it's kind of it's a moot point. Seems like there shouldn't be a statute of limitations on stuff that's going to get someone wrongfully convicted. I'm very passionate that the I believe that the legislature should pass laws in every state that it is a the statute of limitation begins at the discovery, like when you discover that it. So if you got convicted 25 years ago, and which is a Alfred Dwayne Brown, which is one of the Innocence Files cases off Netflix. They didn't discover for 25 years that the evidence had been tampered with. Well, you know, the two-year statute of limitations is run. I would argue that the law should actually be that they discovered it in 2012, so it's two years from when they discover it. But Mm -hmm. that's not the current law. 
Well, hopefully one day it will be so we yeah. can avoid things like this in the future. Because as we'll see in this episode, Ryan gets out after a long time, but um, that doesn't mean that the other person did. So yeah. it's um, it's a wild thing to wrap your head around that you can say, no, I did this, and then and, and can admit... Uh, confess to murder when you didn't really do it. And I think that's why the jury convicted him. And so many others can't understand that Charles Erickson wouldn't have been responsible because why would you implicate yourself if that's not the case? But we will discuss why that might be. And I would, I'll challenge you all as you listen to play constitutional violation whack-a-mole because it's just <laughs> every, every paragraph. Get tired. Yeah. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Ryan Ferguson's trial opened on October 17, 2005. Charles Erickson took the stand first as a prosecution star witness. He had agreed to testify and plead guilty in exchange for a 25-year sentence. On the stand, a well-prepared and self-assured Charles told the jury he was taking cocaine and drinking the night of the murder. Charles testified that after they ran out of money, Ryan suggested they leave the bar and find someone to rob so they could continue drinking. He doesn't stutter. He doesn't. Oh, no. He doesn't stop to think to answer. He walks in like a very confident person with a look of determination in his eyes. He speaks with confidence, um, almost aggressiveness. And that compared to how he spoke and acted during his interrogation or night and day, it's almost as if Someone was starting out in their acting career and they go on an audition and you're like, golly, they're never going to get cast in this. And then they have a couple months of really intense coaching by a really good acting coach. And then they go out and they nail that other audition and they get cast in all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. They, he doesn't miss a cue. No, 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 no. Or a line. He is. He has yeah. read the script and he has memorized all of his lines. When the pair walked to the nearby parking lot of the Columbia Tribune and spotted Kent Heitholt, Charles told the jury, I crept up behind the victim and he started to run, and that's when I hit him and I kept on hitting him. Charles stood and demonstrated on Kevin Crane just how he supposedly hit Kent Heitholt. And they make kind of a dramatic thing about Very. the trial transcripts completely available on freecharleserickson.org and about, Your Honor, we need to uncuff him. We mm -hmm. need to. So, I mean, it, you're really pushing it. In my opinion, it's this like for the jury, you're creating he is a criminal. He did this. And now we have to unhandcuff him and he's going to show you what he did and sh unshackle him. Mm -hmm. It's very dramatic. It is. And they showed in Dream Killer also mm -hmm. and Prosecutor Crane, who is one of the biggest sexist shit we've ever discussed mm -hmm. on this show that isn't He's got an a, actual murderer. That face. Oh, yeah. You just want to you want to you want to punch it. He's very smug, very arrogant. And to also be watching this and know now you're lying through your fucking teeth and you know mm -hmm. that it's just it makes it even worse. But he stands in front of Charles and I mean Charles we've talked about in the last one is 56. Crane is probably 5'10", 5'11", and Charles is noticeably smaller than him and having to, like, reach up. Kent Heitholt was 6'5". Yeah. There's, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't have it's even impossible. been able to reach his head with a tire iron. Mm -mm. It's impossible. After the victim hit the ground, Charles testified that's when Ryan stepped in. 
He was down there and he had a belt and he had a foot on his back and he was pulling up with a belt. He was strangling the victim. After the crime, Charles testified that Ryan had a smile on his face. Later, when the pair allegedly ran into friend Dallas Mallory, Charles testified that he had Heitholt's belt in my pocket. Yet somehow when they search his clothes and everything, there's no blood. Mm -mm. If you had the victim's belt in your pocket that had just been used to strangle him and the crime scene, as they show in Dream Killers, very grisly, you would have blood all over you, all over your clothes. It would have been on your hands. You would have had defensive wounds. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just none of it made any sense from the jump. And one of the fake police reports, they said, oh, Dallas Mallory said you were holding something in your hand. And, you know, so it's yeah. just, it doesn't even match. It's like you can't even match your own fabricated mm-hmm. evidence. You're like, so was it in his hand or was it in his belt or in his pocket? <laughs> Charles told the courtroom that when he and Ryan returned to the By George bar, Ryan admitted to Charles they didn't even need the money as Ryan had cash in the glove compartment of his car. According to Charles, Ryan stated he had always wanted to kill someone. Charles also testified that after confronting Ryan about the murder months later, Ryan threatened to kill him if he ever told anyone. And again, the murder happened well after the bar was shut down. Ryan's a cl- he, Ryan didn't have any kind of uh, a rap sheet. He was a clean-cut kid. I mean, to go from not being have anything on your record to like, I want to kill someone, and tonight's the night. That's just not a jump rational and reasonable people make. No, and he's like a literal Eagle Scout and everything. Yeah. It's... It, it is um, almost as if when making up this um, soliloquy to have Charles deliver that uh, the writer uh, was just going well beyond mm-hmm. what was even close to reality. But, you know, that the jury hears all they that's all they hear. Mm-hmm. So they you know, they're not even well, especially when the defense. We'll yeah. See. And if the defense doesn't challenge anything or paint a different picture, then mm-hmm. you really only are getting one side. It's heartbreaking in the documentary to watch. This going on and Ryan's just sitting there. I've always thought, I think I talked about this in the last episode too. If you're a defendant and you know you didn't do it and you're just listening to this, these lies upon lies, like not just lies, but like the most heinous lies, just you're like, how, how am I even here? How is this being said? None of this is true. And you know that, and you just have to sit there with no expression on your face and just take it all in and not say anything. I don't know how people don't just have outbursts more than they do. A hundred percent. It's like not even close to reality. Mm -hmm. Your natural inclination is to go, what? And just to stand up and be like, this is all bullshit. None of this Mm -hmm. happened. I mean, you're internally screaming. There's got to be a a ton of times where people have externally screamed as well. I would be one Mm -hmm. of them because I just couldn't sit there and, and listen to that knowing your life is on the line. Exactly. This account of events was a far cry from Charles's initial interrogation, in which he claimed he had no memory of the night and was unable to identify what weapon was used to kill the victim. Additionally, when police had driven him to the crime scene, Charles had no idea where they were and could not tell police which direction he had supposedly fled after committing the heinous act. He couldn't even direct police to where Kent's car had been parked in the lot. Charles's story also did not align with the time the bar closed, the time of Heitholt's murder, or the fact that Dallas Mallory was not downtown that night. Prosecutor Crane chalked up the difference in Charles' initial interrogation and his testimony on the stand to a sudden recovered memory and denied coaching Charles on what to say. Ryan's attorney called expert witness Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, a psychologist, 
who testified that Charles's sudden memories were in fact planted by police and prosecutors. As time goes by, our memory is going to fade. Post-event information can cause an alteration, distortion, or change in someone's recollection. It's going to make the person's memory inaccurate. According to Dr. Loftus, There's now been hundreds of studies of post-event suggestion showing how it can contaminate or distort or change someone's recollection. When you question people in a leading fashion, when you insinuate erroneous details, people will pick up that information and adopt it as their own memory. Information from conversations with other people, from media coverage, from other sources, those details can be incorporated into the memory and can cause a distortion, an alteration, or sometimes just a supplementation of the memory. And you see demonstrations of all of this in the interrogation tapes of him he charles fought out says i don't i don't know i think it may have been a shirt used to strangle kent the detective says well i know for a fact it wasn't a shirt oh really maybe a bungee cord no it wasn't a bungee cord we know for a fact his belt was taken off of him and used to strangle him really yep i mean yeah. He he flat out spoon feeds him everything. So mm-hmm. now Charles, who already has this idea of, I think I remember seeing Ryan choke Kent with a shirt. Now in his mind, he's like, okay, it was a belt. So now like this false memory has been implanted in his head and it's changed what he thought had happened when none of it's true. Not even the shirt part was true, especially the belt part now isn't true. It was all just suggested to him. He's under the influence. He's not mentally well. He's, you know, just they took full advantage of him and it cost this guy his life. Well, and you're totally right as far as they they did it, not quite in a way of we're going to change your memory now. They lead them mm-hmm. down the path. And she talks about how in the all the experiments that have done on, been done on people, she said they'll show them a, a, uh, an accident scene. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have a, a yield sign in it. And they'll watch the accident, and then they go back to question the person, and they'll say, hey, when the red car passed the yield sign, do you think that that's why the blue car hit them? And then later on, they'll wait, and they'll say, okay, explain to us what happened in the accident. And they'll say, well, the car passed the yield sign and hit the other car. And she said, we don't tell them there was a yield sign there. She said, we just slip it into mm-hmm. a question. And you kind of lead them down a primrose path. And she said that uh, another test that they did on folks, 25% of subjects you could fully implant a memory of a childhood event of being kidnapped in a like a grocery store by using certain real facts from their childhood. So they would call the sus- the subject's family and say, where did you guys shop? What kind of clothes did you wear? What kind of clothes did the kid wear? And with enough true facts, then they could implant this memory in someone's head and the, a person would genuinely 100% believe. One experiment was the getting lost in a grocery store and the other one was drowning and or not drowning but almost drowning and having to be saved by a lifeguard but using saying so you were with ryan well that's true mm-hmm. and it was halloween well that was true and you were at a bar that was true and then you start to add these other things oh and then you walk down the street oh did i that you it, i mean they're using it's textbook tactics to plant memories in his head it's very manipulative oh 100%. it also works against people a lot of the time there's been um organizations that have come out because there's a lot of controversy surrounding uh, therapists and psychiatrists planting memories, false memories in um, their patients' heads, specifically with childhood abuse and sexual mm-hmm. abuse. And then, you know, families are ripped apart because these memories that the person believes are very, very real and that happened did not, in fact, happen, but were suggested to them. And so it's um, false memory syndrome is not an official 
um, mental illness or anything that's diagnosed in the DSM-5, but there is a lot of people that want it to be, and then there's a whole camp that says it's very controversial and is not based in science. So it's um it's it's wild though how our brains work and how they are so malleable, and that mm-hmm. something so precious as a memory. I mean, that's all we have of the past. That and pictures you can look at, you know. And I ran across the other day. Some diaries from high school, which is a whole other thing. I was just awash with shame as soon as I started reading them. But I'm reading these things and I'm going, man, I don't remember that at all. Or I, when I look back on the time that I was describing in my diary now, I don't have the the memories or the feeling that I had when I was writing that, when it was actually happening and that, that was the truth of of the thing. So it's just crazy that like in my head, 25 years later, I've thought, oh, this is how I remember that time. And this is how I felt about that person or this situation when that is not at all what I was feeling when mm-hmm. I was actually going through it. But if you've had a different version in your head or whatever that you've told yourself, you could become pretty attached to yeah, it. Yeah, and I have. And so, absent, different, you know, now you have evidence to the contrary. So who knows, maybe Charles was really believed all this because it had really been planted and it wasn't just, you know, a script that I think he was fed a script, but then I think he, he held on to it and genuinely believed it. Yeah. I think it started out where he had blacked out from drugs and alcohol and was genuinely worried that he may have had something to do with this horrible crime because of perhaps mental health problems he had going Mm -hmm. on. He had struggled with substance abuse and mental health stuff since he was a a teen. So that's not – it's pretty likely to think that that, you could draw that conclusion. And then they just ran with that. Mm -hmm. They saw an in and they just said, okay, well, we're going to exploit this to the nth degree. There are several different types of memory distortions and reasons why our brains may create false memories. One of these is illusory correlation. This is when our mind incorrectly creates a relationship between two events, according to ThriveWorks. Additionally, false memories can be created by the suggestion of information by others, specifically authority figures or people perceived to hold power. Research also suggests that people who have a history of trauma, depression, or stress may be more likely to produce false memories, according to Healthline. This is a checklist of all the scenarios that was going on here. Yeah. Ryan's defense attorney, Charles Rogers, explained to the jury that, in addition to Charles's testimony being unreliable, the physical evidence at the crime scene didn't match Ryan or Charles, and actually told a different story than the one Charles was spinning. However, Rogers continuously fumbled his representation in the trial, making for an unconvincing argument to the jury. Rogers was from Kansas City and was unfamiliar with the area in which the crime had occurred. Indeed, he had never even walked the scene of the crime for which his client was on trial. When he presented a map of the crime scene that was unlabeled, Prosecutor Crane called Rogers out on several inaccuracies of building locations. Additionally, Rogers stumbled and stuttered while trying to present the timeline of the murder, and at one point even called his client by the wrong name. Yeah, you can read the trial transcript. I mean, it's in Dreamkiller too, but he's when he's uh, in questioning Dr. Loftus, he just in the middle of it goes... I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. He's, it's wild. I mean, are you, you are just like, <laughs> uh, you're. It's just like brum, 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 everything he says, and you just see 
the life draining out of Ryan. Like this guy, mm-hmm. this guy is who I'm supposed to uh, count on to save my life here. And Bill and Bill had said, yeah. I offered to label the map. And he yeah. said, no, I'm good. And then he was not good. How do you not walk the scene of the crime? He's Bill mentioned he's kind of a big shot or was kind of a big shot attorney. I wonder if, you know, you take on more cases or you think you get too big for your britches yeah. and you think, I don't need to look your at it. I got gets this. In the way. I don't know. Well, when Crane's up there saying, well, now this, it is because I'm from here, but this building isn't here. And in fact, this map isn't even from the same year the crime occurred because this cafe is now down here and this is now a car dealership. And he's, I mean, to the jury, he's like, I, it, it looks good. It looks like he mm-hmm. knows what he's talking about. And he makes Rogers look like a complete idiot. He calls his client by the wrong name. Crane has to correct him on that, too. He it's calls him Erickson instead of Ferguson. And he's like, uh, yeah. And then he loses his place. He's having to shuffle his stuff around. It is so cringy and so embarrassing. But you can be asleep at the defense table, come to work drunk. I'm not saying he was either asleep or drunk. I'm just saying the bar for what is ineffective assistance of counsel, it's pretty high. So, yeah. you know. it's it, Is it, would a judge ever look at this going on and say, okay, let's take a breather. Um, defense, can you approach the bench and just be like, do you know what you're doing here? Like, or does the defense, does the client have to say, I believe I have ineffective counsel and try and get things changed? Usually when you see the latter happen, the judge defers to, we trust the lawyer. You're probably just having a fight with your attorney. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes they'll listen. If they go, listen, this guy hasn't visited me once. I don't know him. But we have a dearth of... Uh, available attorneys for you know many folks who need it and also in this case they were at least lucky enough that they could afford somebody Mm -hmm. you know not everybody and not everybody who really under the guidelines of what the definition of you know poverty is there's a gap right so there's a gap of you're so uh you know impoverished that you are appointed an attorney well it may be a you actually have a little bit more money but not enough to really hire an attorney and so then you're you're kind of hosed or you hire whoever you can afford. I think the the client could try, but I don't know that in this case it was so egregious that the judge would have done anything. I, he, I don't know. He may have, but you also kind of go, well, I don't really know any better. I have no experience with the criminal justice system. Maybe this is a tactic. Maybe mm. he's employing a tactic and it'll all work out. And you go, no, he just didn't give a shit enough to like label mm-hmm. a map. Yeah. On the fourth day, Ryan took the stand in his own defense. He had not been prepped for this by his counsel and came across as uncomfortable and unimpassioned. When recalling Charles's mention of the crime at a New Year's Eve party in 2003, Ryan testified, Charles told me he had a dream about it. I told him it was weird and to leave me alone. Though Charles had testified Ryan later threatened to kill him if he told anyone about the murder, Ryan's testimony was that he had not seen Charles after the party until the pair was arrested three months later in March of 2004. And you can also see in the footage on Dream Killer and, and reading in the transcript, Kevin Crane was really poking yeah, the bear with Ryan, yeah. bullying him, yelling at him, trying to trick him, talking over him, uh, interrupting him in the middle of a sentence. And, oh, okay, okay, no, 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 that's fine. Yeah, okay, okay, kind of passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, Implying and so, things that might not be there. He said, well, you said once that 
Charles is an odd man. And Ryan kind of chuckles and is like, yeah. And he goes, is that funny? Is that funny to you? And Ryan's like, no, it's not funny. Okay, well, you laughed. So I thought maybe you thought that was funny. He's like, no, I'm it's I wasn't like I mean, you can just he had not been prepped at all. And Bill Mm -hmm. says in the documentary when they call him to the stand, he knows he hasn't been prepped. And he's like, why are they doing this? This is like a Hail Mm -hmm. Mary. This is unheard of to to have him go up on the stand. And he talked to him beforehand. And he was like, as he was walking up and he's like, just, you know, you, you got this. And then they put him up there. And if you haven't been. I don't want to say coach, but even, I mean, they, your attorney on either side runs through how things are going to go. Here are the questions they're probably going to ask you. Here's how you answer. You know, you go through it so you feel prepared. None of that had been done. He's just up there like willy nilly. And 19 and yeah, basically the only coaching you get is from your dad going, I believe in you. Do your best. You're like, I don't know if I should say this, if what I shouldn't say, how much I should give away, what, how my face should look, the inflection I should say things in it's and unfortunately just, a lot of it's body language yeah. so if you are nervous it could come across as oh well he's kind of flippant he doesn't mm-hmm. care because he's a killer you know your brain just goes the jury's brain just goes in whatever direction it's maybe predisposed to and people laugh when they're nervous a lot and mm-hmm. you know if that's what you do and you haven't been told you can't do that because that's going to come across like you're this psychopath who doesn't care about anybody and you're uncaring and unloving well you can't unring that bell then and plus, if Kevin Crane has asked Charles, oh, after the murder, what was Ryan doing? Oh, he was smiling and mm-hmm. laughing. It's just going to bring that back in the, the jury's brains. Mm-hmm. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. According to the trial transcript, Ryan's cell phone pinged near the By George Bar at 2.08 a.m., indicating he made a call lasting around a minute. The state argued that after this call, Ryan and Charles got a tire tool from Ryan's car and went hunting for a victim. The state claimed they attacked Kent Heitold over a several-minute period, lasting between 2.12 a.m. and 2.20 a.m. This contradicted both the recorded time that Heitold had shut down his computer, 2.08 a.m., and colleague Michael Boyd's statements to police on the timeline the night of the murder. On foot, it takes seven minutes to get from By George to the parking lot of the Tribune. Prosecutor Kevin Crane claimed Ryan and Charles attacked Kent from 2.12 a.m. to 2.20 This couldn't have been possible because the phone ping put them seven minutes away from the parking lot at 2.08. The earliest they could have gotten there was 2.15. Michael Boyd told police he was in the lot talking to Kent around 2.10. Boyd said he shut his own computer down at 2 a.m., talked to a janitor named Mike for five to ten minutes, and spoke to Kent in the parking lot shortly after. 
putting Boyd and Heitholt in the lot together around 2.05 to 2.10 a.m. Despite multiple holes and inconsistencies in the state's argument, Ryan's attorney only briefly challenged this at trial. Yeah, he just kind of mentioned it in the closing. Good Lord. I I just, I, it's ba- it, it baffles my mind that that's your whole job is to yeah. try and not get this person convicted of a crime they didn't commit. And you mail it in of all yeah. the jobs to not mail in. That's at the top, like heart surgeon, mm-hmm. uh, a criminal defense attorney. Mm-hmm. You know, a uh, school bus driver. These are all things that, like, don't show up and half-ass your job. No, 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 no. And he, uh, t- to his credit, he mentioned it. <laughs> but I would have, I mean... I give him zero credit. I mean, you know, there's just so many, I think, more effective ways that the defense could have been presented, and including the... It's, it's sad to say, but juries have become... They've come to expect a little Mm razzle-dazzle, a little bit of technology, a little bit of all the trials I saw when I interned for the judge involved visual. You want to have visual exhibits. Because you You see law and order. You see all those crime shows and you're like, this is what a courtroom is supposed to look like. Yeah, and having the map printed out, great. Having the map printed out and you don't know what you're looking at, terrible. Not good. And Kevin Crane kind of gave the razzle-dazzle. He was dramatic mm-hmm. in his presentation. And from the video footage available on the documentary and then reading the transcript, Rogers struggled with the technology. He struggled with the microphone speaking into it. He struggled with the jury being able to see certain things. And it's like an, you're doing a performance for an audience. They just tune out. Mm-hmm. At some point, they're listening to the most effective speaker in the room, and that was Kevin Crane by by a mile. He Rogers shows the interrogation footage of both Erickson and Ferguson, and one of the the jury members has to say, "We can't hear what's going on over here," and mm-hmm. so they tried to move the TV, but like the acoustics in the courtroom and the recording they had, it just didn't translate. And if you can't hear like something as important as that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, like you said, you just tune out. And wh- <laughs> why didn't you test that ahead of time? I don't know. Can you go into courtrooms ahead of time and like look around and, and figure that stuff out? Yeah, and that's also, I mean, it's a good thing for a defense attorney to do because uh, that was not the first or only trial that Kevin Crane had in that courtroom. Yo, you know, so they're going to be used to with it. it. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be used to it. Mm-hmm. And so you should go in advance and take the time. But again, if you're from a different city, that's the other thing is he's not familiar with the judge, not familiar with the clerks, mm-hmm. not familiar with the building or the rules or the, oh, man, man, if you're in courtroom three, that audio is jacked. So you got to make sure that on the, the file, make sure to turn it up in advance and make sure to provide everybody with a transcript so then they can follow along. And that way they're not relying on, you know, he's from Kansas City. Maybe their speakers are better in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know that in advance and you're from out of town, your client is disadvantaged mm-hmm. by your lack of preparation and knowledge. The two custodians from the Tribune also testified at the trial. Jerry Trump had called 911 the night of the murder. On the call, he told the operator he saw two white men, about six feet tall, but could not recognize their faces. However, after being questioned by the prosecution team in their offices, Trump was suddenly able to identify both men in photographs. Trump testified that he recognized Ryan and Charles from a folded newspaper mailed to him by his wife while he was serving time on unrelated charges. The way the newspaper was folded when he received it, he said he couldn't see the headline, only Ryan and Charles's faces. Trump testified when he saw the photos, he immediately recognized the pair as the killers. You can see how the whole 
setup that the headline was folded makes for mm-hmm. a more compelling testimony. For sure. And to his credit, even though he is flat out lying, Trump comes across as a credible witness. Also, uh, the fact that he's in jail for a sex offense with a minor, not he, that doesn't get mentioned on the stand. It's kind of... Um, Glossed over as endangering uh, endangerment of yes. a child, but um, so he comes across as a very credible witness. But he could have been poked out a lot harder by the defense to poke a lot of holes in that. Yeah, whenever you uh, are provided with exculpatory evidence that allows you to mount a reasonable defense, for sure you can absolutely try to impeach this guy. But if they do ask him. They say, you know, you have a criminal record. Yes, I do. It was endangering a minor. Yes, I do. And they get the timeline of when he was in jail. For, so when he versus he served six months, was out on probation, violated probation, had to go back. And then it was while he was back in jail that he allegedly received this envelope. So it's again, you kind of poke that balloon. So it deflates it. So later on, the defense can't go, you're a sex criminal, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but he comes across, you know, yes, sir. No, sir. And Again, he shows up in a suit. He's well dressed, well prepared. Yeah, knows yes. his lines. Mm-hmm. The second custodian, Shauna Ornt, was also working the night of the murder. She had provided a description of the killer's face, which generated a composite sketch. Before the trial, she was shown images of Ryan and Charles. At the time, she told the prosecutor definitively that neither suspect was the man she saw at the scene of the crime. While on the stand, however, Crane never asked Shauna to point out the killer in the courtroom likely because he knew she would never point out Ryan. Crane failed to turn this evidence over to Ryan's attorney, a violation of Ryan's constitutional rights. Without this exculpatory evidence, defense attorney Rogers never asked Shauna to point out the killer either, not knowing that she would have told the jury Ryan was never there. I mean, from the jump, when they said, all right, we got these two guys in custody, is this them? She said, nope. Yep, from the very beginning. And they did not tell, which they absolutely should have told the defense that that's the case. I mean, that's that's illegal, yeah, right? Well, yeah, 100% it's, it's, illegal. That's a, it's called a Brady violation. Yeah. So there's a uh, Supreme Court case called Brady versus Maryland that sets up this three-pronged test of what should and shouldn't be uh, disclosed. And you should just, I mean, the state should err on the side of disclosing. So in this case, he... Crane full-on knows he should disclose this to the defense. Mm-hmm. He chooses not to, and is just banking on the fact that he's never going to get called out on it, because if he doesn't get called out on it, then he didn't actually do anything wrong or illegal? No, because, I mean, no matter what, he, he did something. It's just as far as if they found out about it, and then they can challenge the conviction. It could be that, I, I doubt it, but it could be that the police, she said to the police officer, oh, that's not them, but... The knowledge of the police is imputed to the prosecutors. So it doesn't have to be that she said it to the investigator from the prosecutor's office. However, he had, at, I believe, two different prosecutors from his office that were interviewing folks. So it would be hard for me to believe that he did not know that she said, oh, that's not them. And that's, to me, proof because he didn't ask her, hey, do you see the person that you recognize from that night in this courtroom? That just never came up. And like she said, well, he didn't ask me, so I couldn't just say it. You can't say that? Mm -mm, You can only answer the questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've been asked. They'll just strike it. Yeah. At the same time, though, it's been heard. Like, I mean, you know, you... Yeah, right. It'll get get struck, but could it... I mean... Just while out. I mean, if you say something like that, they strike it, but the jury's still heard it. From what I understand... 
at least from Jerry Trump's perspective, and he, again, had a criminal record and was now again out on, I think, probation. No, he was out on parole at this time. And Shauna Orn as well. They they mentioned how they, and Dallas Mallory, they they were all uh, strong-armed a bit. They were all kind of, you know, you better not. Shauna Orn straight up said she felt very intimidated. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, in the documentary, she is on the verge of tears. Mm -hmm. They, They even ask her, are you nervous? And she's like, yeah. And then she... Says later in interviews with um, Dateline and also Bill Ferguson that she felt very intimidated by Crane and like she, if she were to speak up about anything, that something bad could happen. Well, and you sit there and see these people are prosecuting a person I know that did not do this. Right. They're for damn sure willing to do something to me. And so, yeah, I mean, Brady applies whether the. Uh, the um, the failure to disclose is intentional or inadvertent. I think it's here. I think it was intentional. Uh, but even if you say, oh, it was inadvertent, oopsie, it's still a violation of his constitutional rights. And it's it, to me, the Jerry Trump, what we find out later about where he actually, you know, saw, quote unquote, saw this newspaper article and this fact that Shauna Orrant refused to identify them. The second prong of Brady is that it has to be favorable to the defendant, which obviously here that's favorable. And the defendant would have to show that, you know, in light of all the evidence, it's reasonably probable that the outcome would have been different had the prosecutor made this timely disclosure and i think here yeah yeah you have this lady on the stand and you go is the person that did this in the courtroom and she goes no and you say oh really no that's not him yeah it wasn't him well oh, okay and if rogers doesn't know that he's not going to ask her because what if she does point to his client and then he's just stuck his foot in yeah. his mouth even more so you're kind of playing trying to play it safe but had you oh, known, yeah, he didn't like, know. It's yeah. not his fault. No, yeah, no, no. I'm just saying that's how it, it proves that because he would have asked that and he, it would have been favorable to Ryan, this mm-hmm. is absolutely a Brady violation sure. that they did not they didn't disclose that. One person prosecutor Crane refused to call to testify was Dallas Mallory, as Mallory would not corroborate Charles' story. Additionally, Rogers did not call him as a witness for the defense. Rogers justified this decision to jurors by saying We don't have the burden of proof. Even so, if Rogers had called Mallory to testify, it's possible Ryan's trial may have had a different outcome. Especially given the Ferguson family had hired their own private investigator and they got an affidavit from Dallas Mallory saying, I was intimidated. Everything I've said to the police has been due to coercion. They've lied. I never said that. They put words in my mouth. I could not have been there. And yet somehow he didn't get called. Yeah, it's... I don't know if this guy, if Rogers felt intimidated out of his depth. I mean, he was supposed to be a big shot lawyer, so that seems weird that he would. But he certainly did not seem comfortable in the courtroom or like he was willing to be the bulldog his client needed him to be. Yeah. And uh, that's the at the end. That was an objection during Rogers closing that he says, well, Charles is sitting here telling you they ran into Dallas Mallory. But where's Dallas Mallory? He's on at trial. And Kevin Crane says your objection, your honor. They had equal opportunity to call. And that's when he said, well, we don't have the burden of proof. And Kevin Crane goes, still, you could have still called him. Yeah. But it's almost like they were playing chicken with each other mm-hmm. on who was going to call who. And Ryan's the one that suffered. Mm hmm. After a five-day trial, the jury deliberated for almost six hours before returning its verdict. On Friday, October 21, 2005, Ryan Ferguson was convicted of felony murder in the second degree and first-degree robbery, just two days after his 21st birthday. On December 5, 2005, Ryan was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Can you imagine you just turned 21? And then you're like, uh, so the rest, basically... All my life, like my good years, mm-hmm. are gone. And at the um, the sentencing hearing, 
Bill gets on the stand and, you know, is asking the jury, please don't give my son the maximum that the prosecution is requesting. If you do, I'll never see him again in my lifetime outside of jail. And that's just when you put it in that perspective, that's why I mean, he because, you know, Bill's probably in his 50s, 60s at that point. Like he goes Mm -hmm. away like he's never going to hug his son again. Mm-hmm. And you see all the things they'd love to do. He talks, you know, we talked about it last time, playing basketball, traveling, all mm-hmm. that stuff. By the time, even if somehow by some miracle that you live that long, those days are over. Yeah. The, the funsy days are all Your over. days of having grandkids, all that stuff mm-hmm. that you dream about, you know, when you're a, a dad and or a parent. I mean, his mom, his mom too. Oh, yeah. All of it gone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ryan's family was devastated after the verdict. With his beloved 21-year-old son sentenced to 40 years in prison, Bill Ferguson made it his new mission to free Ryan. Immediately, Bill began educating himself on the ins and outs of the legal system and the steps he needed to take to help prove Ryan's innocence. Bill walked the crime scene countless times, combed through court records, conducted his own interviews, and talked to anyone that would listen about the case and his son's wrongful imprisonment. One of the interviews that Bill conducted was with Jerry Trump's wife, After locating her whereabouts, he boldly traveled to her home to confirm that she had, in fact, sent the newspaper article to her husband. When he asked her outright if she had sent the article, she responded no, she did not. Bill also spoke with custodian Shauna Orndt, who had testified at trial and seen two men at the scene. When Bill asked Shauna if either of the men were Ryan or Charles, she told him definitively no. And your heart just must sink going, Mm -hmm. this is, you start to go... Well, maybe, you know, initially you go, I think this might be kind of a cover up or this might be kind of a hit job. And then you start to talk to the witnesses and go, oh, it was entirely a hit job. This was entirely made up. I think your heart drops at the same time. It probably gives you hope Mm -hmm. because you think, well, I'm going to gather all this evidence. We've got to get a retrial. How could we not? And then Mm -hmm. my son's going to get out. Mm -hmm. You start to pull at that that yarn, pull at that thread, and it's going to start to unravel. Sadly, what even even in this case, which I think it's smoking gun evidence mm-hmm. of prosecutorial misconduct of withholding evidence and stuff, it still takes years. Yeah. With the aid of a public defender, Ryan attempted to appeal his conviction. Two appeals courts upheld his conviction. In 2008, he filed a motion for a new trial alleging that ineffective assistance of counsel and Brady violations by the state deprived him of his constitutional rights. The motion focused on two key pieces of exculpatory evidence withheld by the prosecutors, the confession of another suspect and statements from Shauna Orndt, 
In November of 2002, years before Ryan's initial trial, a public defender encountered something remarkable when representing a person accused of robbery. His client's acquaintance had confessed to being involved in Heitholt's murder. The attorney sent an email to prosecutors informing them of the new potential suspect. Laser-focused on Ryan and Charles, the assistant prosecutors never forwarded the email to their boss, Kevin Crane, and never forwarded it to Ryan's defense attorneys, either. That is something uh, That is something else that you would need to forward. I think that that's kind of a huge, e- I mean, that's a, an urgent, all-caps, subject-line email. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And good on the public defender for it's a paper trail. Because if you pick up the mm-hmm. phone and call, I mean, there's no proof that anybody said anything. So sending an email and saying, this person says they have information on this murder. Just want to make you aware. Here's their name. Here's where they're being held. Let me know if you need anything. There's at least you've done your duty and said, it's off my plate now. Now, what they did was just go, we don't, well, it, that suspect was black and the janitor said they saw white, two white mm-hmm. guys. So we're going to ignore that. Instead of going, well, you know what? Maybe those two guys just stumbled upon the scene and maybe it could have been a different suspect. It's this thing we've seen with so many prosecutions before of you get, like you said, laser focused on something and you are just blind to any other possibility. And I, it's just... Whether it's hubris, not wanting to have to redo a bunch of work that you're already, mm-hmm. you know, knee deep in this trial. You're like, well, I don't, if we just ignore that, then, we'll go you in. know, we, yeah. Instead of doing what you are, what the oath you took when you became an attorney, what you are upheld to do. Yeah. And uh, and in this case, it could have easily been somebody bullshitting in jail and talking. You still have to give the defense mm-hmm. attorney a chance to talk to that person. I, frankly, I think it's a dereliction of your own duty not to talk to them. But because it's reasonable doubt. Yeah. That, yeah. That's it. I mean, this is evidence favorable. To, again, this fits Brady. You know, it's favorable. It could make the, the difference. And uh, this is a little bit weaker, I guess, depending on if the person feasibly could, you know, if they weren't like in jail at the time of the crime or something like that, you know, if it was feasible. But uh, they it's still every, something that warrants being looked into. F- err on the side of disclosure. Always. Yes. The motion also alleged that Crane and his team failed to inform Ryan's defense counsel of statements made by custodian Shauna Ornt. Though she testified to the events of the night. She was never asked on the stand whether she could point to the perpetrator in court. That's because she had previously told police and prosecutors that Ryan and Charles were absolutely not the men she saw the night of Kent's murder. Rather than informing Ryan's defense attorney of these statements, as required under the constitutional Brady standard, Crane withheld them and never asked her to ID the men she saw while on the stand. At the hearing on July 18, 2008, Crane, who by this point was a circuit court judge, acknowledged that his assistant DAs failed to turn over the evidence in yet another move that violated Ryan's constitutional rights. The assistant DAs argued that because the confessing person was black and the janitor saw two white guys, they didn't need to look into it. This decision did not appear to bother Crane. The motion for a new trial was denied by Crane's 13th Circuit colleague, Judge Jody Capshaw Azel. Well... Isn't that funny that one, some yeah. one of your colleagues just said, nah, you're good. It's bizarre to me, and I, I love whenever I have an opinion and then some genius like Kathleen Zellner is like, "This, I feel the same way. Uh, it's so, these, pretty much every appellate decision in Ryan's case, up until the one, you know, the final one, 
is bizarre and confusing to me. And it is it flies in the face of the standards. The constitutional standards are set. This is the facts is how it and then when you apply the facts to the law, you go, but actually I, I, I get a different uh answer. I don't know. It's kinda like math to me where you have these prongs that need to be met and then you have facts that fit the prongs, but then at the end of it the judge goes, But anyway, everything's cool. Denied. It's yeah. just bizarre. It's I I don't feel confused. I feel like the <laughs> answer is clearly I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Like we don't implicate our own or we don't question our own is what it boils down to. Yeah, and you say, you know, that could be any of us or whatever. I don't know. But I think that that's not your job. Your job is to, you know, protect and uphold the Constitution. And in this case, it did not get upheld many times over. Mm -mm. In the meantime, 48 Hours in Dateline picked up Ryan's story. Celebrated exoneration attorney Kathleen Zellner later told documentary filmmakers that she saw Ryan's case on 48 Hours and noted to her staff, that if his family should call, she would take the case pro bono. Bill contacted her office, and Kathleen took up Ryan's representation in 2009. Thank you, 48 hours. I believe Ryan's girlfriend that he had met while in prison, they had started corresponding, was the one that knew of Kathleen Zellner and mm -hmm. told Bill, like, you should contact her. And Bill contacted her, and he said he sent the email to her at, like, 1.30 in the morning, and by the next morning, she had replied to him oh, yeah. and said, hey, how about um, weekend after next, we meet up and talk about this? Like, she was on it right away. He didn't have to wait months to, to see her. She was ready and willing. Mm -hmm. She's incredible. Oh, she's amazing. She's also she's... from Texas, so shout out. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Shortly after Kathleen became involved, something highly unexpected occurred. After spending five years in prison, Ryan received a letter from Charles. They hadn't spoken since the trial. In it, he asked for Kathleen to come visit him. Rather than proclaim his innocence as Kathleen anticipated, during the tape statement in 2009, Charles took full responsibility for the murder. However, Kathleen was not convinced. The physical evidence pointed to someone else, not Ryan and not Charles either. And this shows you what an excellent attorney that she is because you're getting here a, an opportunity to go, see, look, he's mm -hmm. taking all the blame. We could just use this to get Ryan out. And she says, no, the truth is more important Because here. she has a moral compass and conscience mm -hmm. and Integrity. Is, a, is a great person that mm -hmm. is upholding what, she, what her job description is. In April 2012, Kathleen Zellner represented Ryan at his habeas hearing. Charles Erickson, Jerry Trump, and Kevin Crane all testified. Charles told the judge how he was coached by the prosecution into telling what happened and that none of what he testified at the initial trial came from his own memory. Jerry Trump testified that he lied about his wife sending the newspaper article. He stated that when he came to the prosecutor's office, Kevin Crane pointed to the photos of Charles and Ryan, indicating to Trump that they were the ones who had killed Kent Heitholt. Trump crafted the story about receiving the article from his wife, he said, at the insistence of Kevin Crane. When asked what he wanted in exchange for his testimony at the habeas hearing, a tearful Trump asked only for Ryan's forgiveness. Yeah, and I believe the language used was they told Trump, quote, it, it would help us out a lot if you could say that you saw this with the headline folded down. Mm -hmm. It would really help us a lot if you – it's one of those where he was lying in a way not, not to – besmirch jerry trump but he was lying in a way that was too smart for him that he he wouldn't have known it's more effective testimony to say i saw the photos without the headline but a prosecutor would know that that that's a much more effective 
testimony to say, I just saw it in my heart. I knew, oh my gosh, that's the killer. And I wasn't prompted by the link. Because that's a, a, any good defense attorney would go, well, maybe you were prompted by the headline above it that said these mm-hmm. are the men that did it. So the story that he, the little package that he was selling, it was clearly a package that was given to him by a professional. It also seemed just too on the nose. It's something yes. out of a movie. I received this newspaper and it was folded in such a way that, I mean, you go out of your way to point out it was folded down. So I didn't even see the headlines. I just saw the pictures and it's just, it doesn't even seem believable. Well, and if Rogers would have taken a second to print the freaking newspaper article right. out, you would see, and I believe Kathleen Zellner did it at the hearing. It, it's impossible or it would be improbable that it would be folded that way because the photographs were so close up to the headline mm-hmm. that you would, it's not like it was, a, it was on the headline like was on below the, top the fold half. or above yeah, the, below fold. the fold or whatever. No, it was, it was all on one side. Yeah. And she's like, why would it have folded to the side or been back or and it, yeah. And it, it took made two up. seconds to do that. This yeah. Rogers just, Ah, man. He was not in any, I mean, he was not in the documentary except for the trial footage, probably because he has nothing to say for himself. Yeah, not a a great commercial. Mm -mm. Kevin Crane also testified. In his introduction, the presiding judge, Daniel Green, showed great deference to Crane, instructing those around him to call him Judge Crane and saying, That's what I'm going to call you because that's what you were when I was practicing. Crane denied offering the newspaper to Jerry Trump and denied coaching Charles Erickson on what to say on the stand. Again, just smug. And it's, it's, they take so long to talk about what do you want people to call you? Oh, it doesn't matter. You can just call me whatever. Well, I think we should all refer to you as Judge Crane because you've earned that. And, you know, I mean, just, it's disgusting this mm-hmm. good old boys club that they have. And yeah. it's like, I mean, flagrant, just being very flagrant about it. Just showcasing And buddy, it. buddy. Yeah. And yeah, and Catherine, Kathleen Zellner is not from Missouri. And so, and she said that they fought her a lot on her Pro Hoc Vitae admission, which you you say, I'm, I want to be admitted to your courts for this single purpose. And I'm going to have a local counsel with me or whatever. And that they were all fighting her and kind of like, we don't want some outsider to come in here and try to bust up what we got. It's kind of like what you see with Mur- the Murdoch mm-hmm. case, where it takes somebody going, we're not going to believe this. We're from a different city. We're not... You have no sway over us with your whatever charm, power, authority, whatever you think you have. She's she's not intimidated Mm-mm. and she does not back down and she is not they're in there just patting each other on the backs and she's there to get the truth. Mm-hmm. She's not there to rub somebody's ego. Yeah. Six and a half months after the hearing, on Wednesday, October thirty first, twenty twelve, the eleventh anniversary of Kent Heitholt's murder, Cole County Circuit Judge Daniel Green denied Ryan's habeas petition. Judge Green stated he found Charles Erickson's testimony to be not credible and false. He also found that Jerry Trump's new testimony would not have been a difference maker in the original trial. Additionally, Judge Green declared that Kevin Crane did not encourage perjury. Given the extent of testimony from both Jerry Trump and Charles, Ryan's attorney Kathleen called the decision puzzling. And it, and it is puzzling because, like I said, when you go over the prongs of Brady, they failed to disclose Barbara Trump because the the that's the the whole key is that the prosecutor investigator, the investigator working for the prosecution's office, went and talked to Barbara and said, "Did you mail him this article?" And she said, "I don't know. I don't remember that. Why well, I wouldn't have done that." So that's that would be impeachment evidence because you have a witness, Jerry Trump, on the stand going. 
my wife mailed me this article. Now you have evidence that he lied. That is, whether intentional or inadvertent, that 100% should have been disclosed. Mm -hmm. And when you withhold that evidence that's favorable, that now this person who's saying, oh, suddenly I remembered it was him, and and then when you take that in... When you take that with the the rest of the disclosures that they failed to do, it I mean this is just like bullseye. But 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 for some reason Daniel Green goes, you know, my buddy would never do that. Yeah. I think my buddy did a great job on this. Mm-hmm. Both Ryan and his family were devastated at the loss. Bill had been certain they were going to win. Ryan told Forty Eight Hours that he had allowed himself to have hope and was crushed by the blow. Zellner, however, was not beat. In January of 2013, she filed an appeal to the Missouri Court of Appeals, asking for a new trial because newly discovered evidence established that Ryan was actually innocent and alleged that his due process rights were violated, depriving him of a fair trial. A key issue was whether Jerry Trump's wife, Barbara, had sent the newspaper containing photographs of Ryan and Charles to Jerry. Before the trial, Barbara made a statement to the prosecution's investigator that she did not recall ever providing her husband with the newspaper article. The investigator never told Ryan's attorney about this fact. It would have given Ryan's defense team a meaningful opportunity to challenge Jerry Trump's credibility. The prosecution was legally required to turn over this information to the defense, and failing to do so was a clear violation of Ryan's constitutional rights under Brady. And you see this and you go, how did the last guy... You know, every appeal before this, too. I mean, this is new with Barbara Trump, but it's luckily for Ryan, his case didn't hinge on one piece of evidence. There were Mm -hmm. so many pieces of evidence. They kept getting other extra bites at the apple. Mm -hmm. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On November 5th, 2013, a three-judge panel at the Missouri Court of Appeals Western District vacated Ryan's conviction holding that the prosecution failed to provide multiple pieces of exculpatory evidence to the defense. The panel concluded, The cumulative effect of the non-disclosure when considered with other information the state did not disclose renders Ferguson's verdict not worthy of confidence. Kathleen Zellner headed to Ryan in prison to tell him the news. With the phones not working, she grabbed a pen and a booklet. She scribbled, It is over. And held it up to the glass. This is really powerful in Dream Killer, too, because the moment his parents find out is um, like it's in real time that this is yeah, they're all being happening. Filmed. Yes. And it's um, it's interesting because you would think this is like a huge phone call you get or you go to court to find out this news, but it's just online. They're just checking court records online and they're constantly refreshing because they know the decision is going to come out and they just refresh it and it just says it online and they of course you know lose their minds and call family and everything and then Kathleen calls them and his mom says when is he going to get out and she just says who cares it's over he's getting <laughs> yeah. out you know and she's she's over there it's just seeing all of that and just the relief and joy that they feel and just you know the outpouring of emotion is is really something 
Well, and for, you know, after so many hours that, you know, Bill and Leslie put in of fighting for him, I'm sure tons of money. Now Kathleen Zellner's put tons of time in. And for Kathleen Zellner, seeing there is at least still some justice, mm-hmm. that there are there are these, the three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals actually follow the law. Because the puzzling decision prior to that, the decisions prior to her being in the case, what happened in the investigation, you kind of, I mean, this is her job day in and day out, but it has to at least feel good to go, at least there's some adults in the mm-hmm. room that know what the heck is right. going on. At least this wasn't all for naught. And, you know, she she tells the documentarians, like, this is the last last stop. You know, mm-hmm. the, he, he's out of, he's out of ch- chances after this. And uh, this is the appeal where you get 15 minutes to mm-hmm. plead your case, right? Which is, mm-hmm. she said they prepared months and, and countless hours for 15 minutes. I mean, that is a very small window to get everything you need to say in very concisely and make sure you don't miss anything. And her, I was telling you when I was reading her petition, it's so well drafted. If you ever think, man, I think I want to go to law school, or if you're in law school, I'll put it in the show. I mean, it's in the show notes as well as one of the sources. But the way that she framed pieces of evidence and was not heavy handed, I think that it's a lost art of that persuasive writing where you don't have to say, this was a huge, massive fabrication or deal, screw up. You just go, this, this, and this happened. This is what they said happened. Mm hmm. And you, you kind of, I mean, it speaks for itself and she uses certain phrases and certain words that are very effective and that coupled with her, you know, 15 minute oral argument. I mean, obviously it was successful, but it's the difference in somebody getting up there and going, I don't know what street that building's on. Right. Gee, golly whiz. Wait, wasting five of your 15 minutes on just fumbling around. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's incredible. Ryan was not freed immediately as the prosecutors had the opportunity to refile charges. They had a week to decide. Eventually, they came to the decision that they would no longer pursue the case. Finally, on Tuesday, November 12, 2013, after spending nearly a decade behind bars, Ryan Ferguson was reunited with his family. He told the crowd gathered, To get arrested and to get charged for a crime you didn't commit is incredibly easy and you lose your life very fast. But to get out of prison, it takes an army. In all, Zellner said her office spent around 3,000 hours on Ryan's case and over a million dollars in legal costs. She told documentarians, It was the best million dollars I ever spent. Bill Ferguson likely spent even more hours working tirelessly to free his son. And Kathleen tells documentarians, too, People always think this can't happen to them, and I tell them, this can absolutely happen to you. Which Mm -hmm. was scary. I told you how I was watching that, and I thought, man, the cops could just knock on my door right now and claim I did something and... Dunzo, that's it for me. Drag me. Yeah. In March of 2014, Ryan filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city, county, prosecutor Kevin Crane, police officers, and investigators who worked on his case. Eventually, in July of 2017, the legal ordeal was over. The remaining defendants admitted liability, and a damages trial was held before U.S. District Judge Nanette Lawfrey. After the trial, the judge awarded Ryan $11 million. $1 million for each of the 10 years he was incarcerated, plus $1 million in attorney's fees. And that's, again, where you go as a citizen of Missouri in this county. Your county is now paying out this settlement because, well, this, you know, it's not a settlement. They're paying out this lawsuit because they found credible evidence that they're hiding evidence there. It's prosecutorial misconduct. It's police misconduct that you should want 
clean people running your city because, A, you don't want to be the one on the receiving end of, I, I don't think I would take $10 million for losing 10 years mm-hmm. of my life. She, she asked, they asked for 100 Yeah. And I would have given, if I'd been on that jury, way more than 10 But to your point, yeah, this is your tax dollars. And also, all your tax dollars cost tons of money to have this trial and have him wrongfully imprisoned for a decade. Mm-hmm. And you see in other c- cases where the prosecutor's office fights the stuff, you know, fights, you know, whether it's DNA evidence or testing or whatever. And that's yet still more hours that are being wasted. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a massive drain on resources in the system. And again, you're stealing somebody's life away that I don't I don't think money can adequately no. compensate. No. Ryan confessed in an interview with Keith Morrison from Dateline. The reacclimating to the outside world was difficult after his release. As time went on, he became more comfortable, and opportunities began to present themselves. In 2016, Ryan hosted Unlocking the Truth on MTV for one season, which told the stories of three wrongfully convicted people fighting for their freedom. In 2020, he began competing on the 33rd season of The Amazing Race, after a casting director reached out to him on social media. The race was stopped when the pandemic began, and Ryan took the 19-month break to work out and earn his pilot's license. When filming resumed... Ryan and his partner, childhood friend Dusty Harris, were back at it again. He told 48 Hours. I've been through a lot of these stressful environments before, and I know how to support my teammate, and so all these things just kind of came naturally to me. As of January 2022, Ryan lives in New York, works for Next Step Realty, and has started the podcast Prison Counts. The show gives a voice to the formerly incarcerated and humanizes their experiences so that they and others can more easily reintegrate into society. And you can see from social media, you know, he spends time with his parents, his sister. They, you know, he visits his grandparents in the documentary. You just kind of try to make up for lost time, I think, and travel. And now The Amazing Race is a real good way to real good way to see the world. Dude, for sure. I believe his Instagram, like his little bio says, wrongfully imprisoned for 10 years, making living every day now to the fullest or something to that extent. And I mean, yeah, when you've had a decade taken of your life. Pack every single minute of every single day. And not even if you've had, that's a lesson for all of us. Mm-hmm. Regardless if you've been wrongfully incarcerated for a decade, like we should all live each day to the fullest. And for so many, it takes something like this to happen to really put that into perspective. I mean, I'm so guilty of that. I'm always like, I need to do more. I need to, you know, make every moment count. But then, you get tired, you get lazier, like, or I could just take a nap, or I could just watch <laughs> this show, which that's fine to do too. But that's something I struggle with a lot that maybe I should, um, maybe we should apply to be on The Amazing Race. You did say we would kill it on there. We after. would crush it. <laughs> we would crush it. It would be amazing. I would have to, I would have to read Ryan's book on physical fitness to really get in shape <laughs> because they do a lot of things that I would just he's pass they're out. amazing and they there's definitely been times in the show that you're watching it and you think man they're down for the count and he just you know he blows it out like he's he reaches in and gets that inner strength that mm-hmm. I think not everybody has where if you said well he talks about how when he was in jail he would just like read books and he, I'm like D- man you made it through Ernest Hemingway Old Man <laughs> in the Sea good for you because I could not make it through that book well when you but, got like, nothing what else you got else to do yeah you got nothing else yeah. to do so it's just really impressive to watch him you know dig deep and Dusty talks about his he lost his dad and that he feels like his dad is watching over them and so you can tell I, I love I was telling Paris when we were watching it they're very encouraging of each other they hug each other they'll give each other 
kiss on the head. They're like, I love you, buddy. You got this. And I said, I just, I love where we are as a society that it's not like, no, but no, it's fine. Let's just don't, yeah. you know, like the, a lot of jokes, things like that were played for jokes in like the 90s and even early mm-hmm. 2000s that they just unabashedly love each other and support each other and tell each other that every day. And that's another thing we should all do is, and you said it's Valentine's Day. It's also my dad's birthday. I said, it's Phil McKinney Appreciation Day. He always told people how much he loved them, how proud he was of them, and, you know, and just not holding back. And you can tell in Ryan that he's he's just there to say, absolutely, like, I love you. You can mm-hmm. do this. I believe in you. And doesn't have, you know, you don't have time to hold back when you lose time like that. I'm a big fan of normalizing male friendships like mm-hmm. that. Like, it's, you know, it's been accepted for so long for women to cry to each other or give hugs or, you know, lay on each other on the couch if they're, you know, hanging out or whatever. All of that is totally fine for everyone, regardless Mm -hmm. of your gender, because guess what? Gender is just a social construct. And the more like those things get normalized on a big platform, like a Mm -hmm. major television show by, you know, people that two guys that look like good looking bros, you know, Mm -hmm. that I think that that does a lot for um, where we need to be as a society. Ryan told Keith Morrison in 2013 that he intended to help exonerate Charles, despite it being his confession that convicted Ryan. I know that he was used and manipulated, and I kind of feel sorry for the guy. He needs help. He needs support. He, he doesn't belong in prison. Charles Erickson's appeal was denied in 2019. In June of 2021, his attorneys filed an innocence petition with the Missouri Supreme Court. The petition argued... After the Court of Appeals found that police and prosecutors engaged in wrongful and abusive conduct to obtain Ryan's conviction, it ordered Ryan's release in 2013. Even though the same police and prosecutors used the same wrongful tactics against Charles, he has continued to languish in prison. Charles remains incarcerated at the Boonville Correctional Center and currently has a parole date set for 2023. This is definitely a case of... Petition, sign a petition, write to your lawmakers, write to whoever, because that, that the, the logic is flawless. I mean, the exact yeah. same thing happened to both of them. I think, Why is one of them out? I think they their argument is, well, but he confessed. Throughout, Ryan was adamant he did nothing. He had nothing to do with this. And it's hard for a lot of people to get past the fact that Charles confessed to this in the beginning and that they're like, I would never. How could anyone com- confess? Well, we've gone over why that can happen. Mm-hmm. And also, until you walk a mile in somebody's shoes, it's real hard to say what you would and wouldn't do. Yeah, and I think you see the tactics used on him. Like you said, it feels gross. It feels illegal. I I would urge the court to say, we will throw out confessions where this tactic is used. Mm-hmm. Former prosecutor Kevin Crane is now a judge in Missouri taking over the seat vacated by Ryan's trial judge, Ellen Roper. Crane was later elected as a circuit court judge and was re-elected in 2018, a race he ran unopposed. Know who your judges are. Yeah. Make sure their candidates are running against them. And if no one's running against them, run against them. <laughs> we, need more, <laughs> we need more good people to run against people like this. But also to... Uh, you know, shine a light on judges that are like this, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so often this is how this happens is because nobody's running a post or because people only focus on like what the president and the, the big officers mm-hmm. are doing. And like we've said so many times, like a lot of the changes that you want to see chain happen are going to happen in your own city, in your own state, in your own county. 
And he was elected as DA, and then he mm-hmm. failed upward and is now elected. And, you know, so you you say, and it may be, okay, well, you know, local politics are such and yada, yada. I get it. There, It takes a long time to turn a big ship around, but it's not hopeless. And I think you're right. The, the tiny, uh, the smaller elections are the ones that sometimes people win or lose by 350 votes. Right. It has been over 20 years since Kent Heitholt was murdered, and his killer still remains at large. According to friend and former colleague Joel Wall Jasper, Ken Heidholt was a soft-hearted guy who rooted for the underdog. He fed stray cats. He loaned money to janitors. As for whether Ryan did it, Wall Jasper told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch he would have voted for acquittal if he had been on Ryan's jury. Kathleen Zellner engaged Ann Burgess, a doctorally prepared, board-certified psychiatric clinical nurse specialist, to provide a classification of Heidholt's murder in connection with the appeals and civil process. Burgess concluded that, based on the available evidence, Heitholt's murder was a revenge killing. The close-range, confrontational manner of the attack indicated Heitholt knew his attacker. His fifth anniversary at the paper was the day of the murder. Burgess concluded this could have been a precipitating event for the killer. And I believe, I cannot recall the character's name, but she is a, there's a character in Mindhunter based on her. So oh, she's a very famous, very well-respected uh, forensic psychiatric mm-hmm. expert. Burgess alleged this killer may have brooded over some perceived wrong that Heitholt and his family may not even have been aware of. Burgess's report also noted the police never investigated or collected DNA from Michael Boyd, the last person who saw Kent Heitholt alive. Her report is available on freecharleserickson.org, and we'll link it in the show notes. It's it's very extensive. It If you're interested in forensic psychology, it's a great read. It's fascinating how she takes each individual piece of evidence and links it to a motivation mm-hmm. of the assailant. I think it's something that the police would be uh, very foolish to ignore. I think it helps direct the investigation. Uh, and it also it doesn't it, it also obviously because she was hired by Kathleen Zellner, it says these are the reasons why it couldn't have been Charles and Ryan, which we know it wasn't them. But I, it, it's you're welcome, Columbia Police Department, right. because Kathleen Zelder just spoon-fed you one of the nation's top experts, giving you an exact profile of who mm-hmm, did this. Mm-hmm. While Jasper took umbrage with Zellner's inclusion of Michael Boyd in Ryan's quest for freedom, writing an op-ed in the Tribune in response, according to Wall Jasper, neither he nor any of his other Tribune colleagues recall any animosity between Boyd and Heitholt. In fact, Wall Jasper wrote, Boyd idolized Heitholt. The day after the murder, he sat in my office and cried. The journalist also writes off Boyd's disposal of his car and multiple conflicting statements to police, writing, A fuzzy memory in a chaotic car history isn't a felony. And he says that because in her uh, habeas petition, she lays out why Michael Boyd is a viable suspect. You know, she says he had this car, he lied about what car, or he was confused about what car he drove on what night. The three different statements he gave to police within, you know, several days of each other conflicted on time, conflicted on what happened. He returned to the scene of the crime after leaving work. Uh, then he they they said, well, what happened to the clothes you were wearing? He said, well, I washed them right when I got home. And they said, well, do, do you normally do that? You know, there's these things that when you're zealously advocating on behalf of your client, which I think Kathleen Zellner was, it would be a failure not to include. Mm-hmm. It would be a failure to say there was hair and there was a whole thing about 
the police, I mean, it says in the crime scene report that there was hair in Kent Heidholt's mm-hmm. hand. And then police later said, no, there wasn't. There wasn't. We couldn't have tested it. There was no hair there. You know, testing there fingerprints. Were fingerprints test- on the car. There was yeah, other blood at the scene. Mm-hmm. And so at searching somebody's house, you know, uh, Burgess said it's likely that because it was a revenge killing. Now, of course, 20 years on, it may that may not be the case anymore. But she said the killer likely would have kept something, which he was the keys were missing from the scene. His watch was missing from the scene. Uh, possibly his paperwork. wallet was left. Yeah, the wallet was left, you know, and and then like he, they knew him because you kind of feel bad afterwards. She said it was obviously staged because uh, they tried to stage it as a robbery by stealing the keys. But then they kind of took care of the body in the fact that they took the, the glasses had flown off. And instead of leaving them, they took them and put them in the seat of the car and shut the car. You know, mm-hmm. stuff like that where it's uh, I think now the time for investigation may, may be a little bit cold where she said, Oh, he would have kept the items. Well, then you see it's a hot case. You know, did it, did they keep them for two years, five years, 20 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. It may be too late. Missouri law school, wrongful convictions, professor Rod Upoff told KRCG news that the case is likely too cold to solve. There is some hope via the DNA evidence found at the scene, but professor Upoff believes the more likely scenario to solve the case would be if someone confesses to having knowledge or involvement in the murder, and the confession is reported to the police. The day after he was released from prison, Ryan told KMBC that he believes he knows who killed Kent Heitholt. I believe we know who did it. I think it's a matter of proving it and a matter of getting help from the authorities at this point. I think the facts show clearly who did it. You know, I'm not going to throw names out there, but anyone who takes the time to look at the evidence, I think it'll become obvious to them who that individual is. If you have information relating to the murder of Kent Heitholt, please contact the Columbia, Missouri Crime Stoppers at 573-875-TIPS or 573-875-8477. You can also go to 875tips.com. So what do we think? I think it's very telling that Ryan said, I think it will become obvious to them who that individual is. Yeah, and I think it's hard because I I don't know what is stopping them from investigating the case. Yeah, unless they just don't want to take the time and effort. But are you kind of, you know, you see in some cases where despite all evidence to the contrary, you kind of dig in and go, I did nothing wrong. There was an interview I saw shared on social media with one of the, the um, officers in this case who said, my name's being drugged through the mud. I didn't do anything wrong. And it's like, we saw the videos on YouTube. Yeah. Man. Like, yeah. I mean, you ain't helping. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. So you see cases like this where, like I said, I don't know if they're just dug in, if they're overwhelmed, they don't have resources, they don't have, you know, a cold case uh, detective or investigator or something like that, which I think would help a lot of uh, police departments having dedicated, uh, you know, a dedicated investigator to cold cases only. I think this shows us that. Sadly, the prosecutors and uh, investigators can do a lot and not see they're not personally paying out that hundred million or the ten million dollar verdict. Mm-hmm. They're not paying that out. The city's paying it. So where you go, well, why can't a prosecutor go to jail for something like this? Yeah. Why do and they, they have can't? immunity? It's that's, yeah, there's qualified it's immunity. 
And also just the statute of limitations running. So changing the statute of limitations from the date of the discovery versus the date of when it happened. There's also a proposal that has been floated by legal experts, including Barry Sheck from the Innocence Project, that they should, all judges, state, federal, every single judge that sees criminal cases should issue a standing ethical rule order. And by doing that, then the and that the rule basically says you have to disclose pretrial all evidence that would negate the you know that would tend to negate the guilt so like exculpatory evidence and the reason that that would be important is it would allow a court to retain authority over a prosecutor and you can hold a prosecutor in criminal contempt for withholding evidence so you're basically saying i had this order in place you didn't do what you were supposed to do under it, which regardless, the Brady violation, the constitutional thing is only going to get the conviction overturned. It's not going to put the prosecutor in jail. This order would say, I'm going to hold you in criminal contempt if you're later found to have engaged in misconduct. And that's what happened in the Ken Anderson case. The the court at, at issue in that case had issued a standing order that way. And so 25 years later, you know, Ken Anderson, who was the prosecutor, was able to be held in jail. Do you know how long? A day. He was given... He was given 10 days, but he was out in five for good behavior. Wow. Meanwhile, Michael Morton spent 25 years in jail, and Ryan yeah. Ferguson spent 10 years mm-hmm. in jail, and, and this prosecutor is spending zero for days in jail. For doing nothing he's, wrong. He's doing, yes. Yeah. Michael Morton didn't do anything wrong either. And another lady got murdered by the person that killed Michael Morton's wife. So you see, again, we don't know whoever killed Ken Heithold. We don't know if they killed somebody right. else. Yeah. You know, and that's that blood is on their hands. So I think having those standing, you know, ethical rule orders would at, would at the very least there would be something that the statute of limitations hasn't run. There's a whole deal on what the statute of limitations on criminal contempt is. But like the, the opponents to that or, you know, maybe more cynical folks have said, uh, I know some people that are so absolutely egomaniac driven they would say i'll take 10 i'll take 10 days in jail just Mm -hmm. to win yeah it needs to be more than that it needs to be more than just a slap on the wrist it's 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 sad that they have to have an incentive not Mm -hmm. to um elite do illegal things to get a win Mm -hmm. and that they their ego is so much so that they put that before just destroying innocent people's lives i mean you get Mm -hmm. one shot at this yeah. And you just ripped 10 years of that one shot away from him. And absolutely. Ca- I mean, 10 years incarcerated. Then you get out. And how many years is it of healing? Probably mm-hmm. forever. Emotionally. And, yeah. And trauma and, and working through that. So it's not just the time you were behind bars. I mean, you changed this entire person's life and their family's life. And 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 you again, you get promoted. I think yeah. it was like as of twenty twenty, it was only four percent of the prosecutors in the U.S. who were in, involved in wrongful conviction cases that were prosecutorial misconduct cases faced any kind of discipline. Wow, it, you know, any four percent, and even those, it was like a tiny, tiny sliver of those had their licenses revoked or you know disbarred or whatever, or reprimanded officially. But like that, the Ken Anderson got his law license taken away. He had practiced for thirty, forty mm-hmm. years. So yeah. He was fixing to retire yeah, anyway. It doesn't like, matter. Go no. take it. I don't want it oh. anymore, anyways. And once you're a judge, you get a judge pension, and he gets to keep his judge pension. Wow. So you kind of just see it, there's really no incentive not to. Yeah, yeah. Because they're not facing anything. No, there's no, there's nobody. If you could show up at work at whatever job you have every day, and you could do whatever, and there's no penalty for that, no repercussions. I mean. The possibilities of the fuck ups you're gonna do are endless because there's mm-hmm. no one like there. There's no account accounting for anything. You're not held yeah. accountable for shit. 
I mean, and, and that's why I, I love that we're seeing this push towards we want an accountable prosecutor's office. Like I said, Dallas has a conviction integrity unit. Tons of other states are getting them. Whether they're effective, that's a whole other thing to be researched, but at least they exist. Um, and so we see that that's, there's a move toward that. And, and frankly, it takes a, a upstanding you know, good hearted with integrity prosecutor to say, absolutely, I want a conviction integrity unit. I mm-hmm. want to make sure these were done right. And the same with Williamson County, which was where that happened. You know, they went in and did a, a, an audit of all past cases that that guy had touched. So you have that mm-hmm. issue again, where it's pro bono attorneys doing that, that, you know, spend an hour to do that. But hopefully, you know, this was an aberrant case, but maybe look into other cases yeah. where Crane's this person prosecuted. was. Mm hmm. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, get Ryan's story is it's out there even more now because he is on the Amazing Race and stuff. So it's it's like getting more um, attention even now. And mm-hmm. when things like that happen, that's how change is enacted. You know mm-hmm. that, or that they'll maybe hopefully start to relook into the case because I saw that in 2013. You know the. Columbia PD was like, well, we're going to reopen this case. Well, there's that was how long ago? And I haven't seen anything come out that they've done anything. And when you've got the person you put behind bars has been released. The other one, you got to know he's not guilty. Like, how has they should be forced to reopen this, Mm -hmm. you know? And I have my opinions of of. Who is responsible? I think it's probably the same person that um, Ryan thinks did it and that Kathleen Zellner and um, Ann Burgess also think did it. I mean, when you just look at all the evidence that there is that's available, you connect the dots and there really only seems to be one answer that makes sense. And and if that's not the person that did it, I think it would be a pretty easy uh, ruling out, you know, mm-hmm. an exclusionary test yeah. and go, well, oh, OK. Well, test when that you- hair unless it's uh, been lost. Test those fingerprints unless, I mean, who knows what evidence is even still around mm-hmm. that you can even test anymore. But or you hope it's maybe. Still there uh, and- yeah. Maybe apply some pressure to start re-questioning people. Mm-hmm. Maybe some some people will like they like. um he said it's going to take someone either confessing or coming forward with some knowledge maybe to to crack this wide open. So if you know anything, like we said, um, contact the Missouri Crime Stoppers or you can go to 875tips.com with any information because Kent Heitholtz, uh needs justice. His family needs justice. I know at um, at the sentencing of Ryan – Kent's daughter was in in favor of Ryan being convicted. They have not really come out, and even though people have reached out for interviews since he's been released, they haven't really come out and said anything. So it's hard to know what their feelings are on it. But Ryan has said, you know, he wants to help get justice for them too. And mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where if you're the family – you think something's over with, then it gets all reopened and all those wounds also get reopened. So it's hard, even if you know, like in my heart of hearts, I don't think this is the right person that killed our loved one. But to go down that path again is, is a whole other just years and years of turmoil. So whatever, however they feel is how they feel and no one can fault them for that. But I hope that um, justice is served with all of this. 
that mm-hmm. people are held accountable for all the seriously illegal and, and shady things they've done that the right killers brought to justice and that Charles Erickson gets released from prison. I mean, at the very least, his parole is coming up in a year. So hopefully at the very least, he gets released then. That, yeah. And and that they see that it's, he's wrongfully convicted. And if they can't overturn his conviction, at least let him out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have some live shows coming up. We, we have a double header on February 25th. We're doing The Cult at 7.30 and Hot Dish at 9. What is The Cult, you ask? Well, it is myself, Christy Wallace, Tommy Brown, Raymond Fisher, Nick Scott, and Jade Smith. It is a dream team of people that I love to perform with. Aww. And uh, we get a word. Christy comes out and says, shout out any word at all. And then we do a Everyone little yells dicks. And then yeah. we do a show. Deal those. Uh, <laughs> do a little make them up. And then Hot Dish at 9 p.m. It is a rotating cast of performers. Christy and I will be on there with some of our fans and friends. We're really just friends. They're they're not fans of us. I'm just <laughs> We're fans of them. I'm I'm huge fans of them. Of I think the, they're fans. The they're fans of us personally. We're mutual. Yeah, mutual some friends. listen to the show, but they're more personal fans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all that information is going to be at sinisterhood.com slash live shows, and we have an update. You are not doing people presenting things on March 10th. I am not. So if you have, if there was a mad rush to buy tickets, I apologize. But I forgot that that is the night of the Elton John concert. And um, it's his farewell tour. He's been saying that for a while, but I think this might really be his farewell <laughs> tour. So um, I have always said um, I wanted really good seats to see him. And so I splurged and it's that night. So I had Making to tell Kate and she and then it was a very long text thread between Kate and Eric Van Leeuwen and myself of just Elton John pun after Elton John pun. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited because now I have more time to make a uh, slideshow. Yes, I was yes. ideating with Paris on what I could make for you. So oh, we'll get I'm you on excited. another one. Yeah, I'm going to do I'll the one in um, April. So I'll, okay, I'll get I'll back to you it. with more information on that. We love providing Sinister to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting this show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves tier and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including Am I the Asshole, Relationships, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, Wedded Drama, True Crime Headlines, and more. There are so many of them. It's amazing. I love doing them (laughs) because I love it because we just have fun doing all of them. So much fun. The month of February, every Friday at 12.30 p.m. Central, we are doing Docuary. We get on Crowdcast. We live stream. We talk about a documentary. So Docuary, every Friday, 12.30 p.m. Central. Information on the Patreon. This one coming up, we are doing the work, which um, mm-hmm. ironically is all about um, prisoners working through um, trauma and things that they have done um, in their lives while in prison. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We help out occasionally, and we also host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available, and if you select this option, you get a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out.
So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want some cool swag like T-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterhoodPod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. everybody thank you so much for supporting the show on patreon here are your special patreon shout outs rachel brant fisher Brittany bernardi michelle valerio susan sarah donahue rebecca hans emily rohan Kristen randall rooster 919 thomas boatner stephanie debrol kinsey kelly schmidt caitlin ellis sarah bolton madalena Crisson, tiffany rachel p will run annalise abby gurin Kate Nicely, Sarah Lee, Patrick Carlson, Nancy, Karen Babiak. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do this without you. We sincerely appreciate it. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Sinister. <laughs>